0: Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, editor-in-chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, untapped resources. The taxation of the super-rich has long been a focus of a number of tax policy scholars. There are many features of the tax code that those with large fortunes can exploit to allow their wealth to grow while avoiding tax on the gains. Today, We're taking a look at one of these loopholes and a proposal on how to close it. Here to talk more about this is Tax Notes contributing editor Robert Goulder. Bob, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Dave. It's great to be back.
0: Now, I understand you recently talked to someone about this topic. Who did you talk to?
1: I spoke with Professor Edward Fox with the University of Michigan Law School and with Professor Zachary Lisko with Yale
0: Law School. And what sort of things did you talk about?
1: We discussed their tax notes article in which they outline an interesting tax reform proposal, one that targets certain high net worth individuals. As you know, there are these wealth tax proposals in circulation around Washington, D.C., and they're controversial for one reason or another. This proposal is fundamentally different. In fact, I'm hesitant to even call it a wealth tax. It's not concerned with the taxpayers' accrued wealth per se. Instead, it's narrowly targeted on the extent to which millionaires and billionaires borrow against their amassed fortunes to finance an opulent lifestyle. So it's really more of a tax on borrowing than on wealth.
0: All right, let's go to that interview.
1: We are joined by professors Ed Fox and Zach Let's go. Thank you for joining us. Now, you've written this article for Tax Notes. It came out in January and it's been circulating for a while now. It's gotten some real positive feedback. Even on social media, people are praising your ingenuity. So just to review, the piece is titled, No More Tax-Free Lunch for Billionaires, Closing the Borrowing Loophole. And my very first thought on uh, reading your piece was that the headline was a nice little nod to the noted economist Milton Friedman, who once famously said there is no such thing as a free lunch. And, well, with all due respect to Mr. Friedman, he obviously didn't spend enough time reading the Internal Revenue Code because our tax laws do create some metaphorical free lunches for certain taxpayers, as we're about to learn. So let's take our time back up and review your proposals step by step. First, now, you open your article talking about Larry Ellison, the co-founder of Oracle, and he has income, he pays tax every year. But if we're honest, he is proportionally undertaxed when you take his wealth into consideration. Part of that is due to this borrowing loophole. So right out of the gate, let's just define what it is. Can you tell us what is this loophole?
2: Yeah, great. This is Zach here. Delighted to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. So what Larry Ellison and and, many other very well-off people do is they own an asset. In the case of Larry Ellison, Oracle stock, it increases in value. They get rich and then they want to spend some of that money. One thing that they could do is sell stock and buy things. In that case, though, they would have to pay tax on the gains. In the case of Oracle for Larry Ellison, those would be large gains. Another thing, though, that they can do and is totally allowed under the current uh, income tax code is to borrow against those gains. And when folks borrow, like Larry Ellison, they do not pay any tax at all. You know, there can be a variety of opinions around the idea of taxing gains that have not been sold. Some think that, you know, there are good reasons to tax that. Other reasons think that's problematic. But people who think that's problematic tend to think that the reason that's problematic is that those gains have not actually become cash. They're not real in some sense. However, when you have those gains and then you borrow against them, and get cash from that borrowing, and then buy things with that, that argument no longer holds. You have, in effect, turned those gains into cash. And we think that it is thus fair to be taxed on those gains, in effect, to have a realized income.
1: And anything to add to that?
3: The problem is particularly profound when it comes to borrowing that's held over until death. So Ed McCaffrey, a tax scholar at USC, has coined the term buy, borrow, die for the strategy that Zach was just describing, except that instead of ever selling to pay, you say, back your borrowing or to buy other things, you keep rolling over that debt until your death. At that point, the current treatment is that your heirs will receive what's known as a stepped-up basis in their assets, equal to the fair market value at the time of the decedent's death. What, in effect, that's going to do is for income tax purposes, that erases all of that built-in gain that, say, Larry Ellison had on his Oracle stock. And his kids can repay his borrowing, selling that stock, having no gain because the basis has been stepped up. And at that point, Ellison is able to consume large amounts of his gains without ever having paid any tax. And that, you know, you might just be wondering, well, if you borrow, the other shoe's going to drop at some point. But in the presence of
1: 1014 and the step up in basis, that's not necessarily true. In the broadest terms, can you describe what is the problem that your proposal is trying to resolve?
2: so uh, what uh, we have is a situation in which someone borrows a large amount of money turns it into cash effectively turns those unrealized gains into cash and does not pay any tax on it so we propose this tax to uh, address that problem the non-taxation of the things that we spend our money on uh, unlike you know wages where you know you get your wage you do pay tax on that. Most of us, when we, things we spend money on, we have paid tax previously on that money. So suppose you've got your billionaire and he borrows $10 billion. And suppose he has underlying assets that he originally bought for $1 billion. What that's gonna mean is that our billionaire has to pay tax on $9 billion the $10 billion worth of borrowing minus the $1 billion worth of basis. And that is, in effect, a deemed realization on those $9 billion worth of gains.
1: Okay, so it kind of looks like the real problem then is that our tax code has a concept of realization, which requires what, a disposal, sale, or exchange of an asset, but it excludes the act of borrowing against that asset. How do you propose to fix that?
2: So we want to treat borrowing as a realization of underlying assets. So Ellison borrows $10 billion. That means he has realized $10 billion worth of income. We estimate that this would raise about $100 billion at the the higher tax rates in the proposed Biden budget. At existing tax rates, it it would raise less. Importantly, we propose imposing this on both future borrowing as well as borrowing that exists today you know people have borrowed they've benefited they've consumed we think that they should be taxed on that and when we estimate the revenue a little over half the income comes from the existing borrowing and we think that that's an important and we think fair part of the tax proposal
1: Okay, so you're looking at the act of borrowing against an asset as a form of constructive realization. And when I read that, I was thinking, okay, if I wanted to game this system, if we actually had this tax in place and I wanted to game it, what if I only used as collateral the assets that I held that had a real high basis? Or you know, would you have gaming of that type? And what I liked about your proposal, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, It's not a tax on collateral per se, right? Because this is all recourse debt, right? So you actually don't have a strict requirement in your proposal that any particular assets be pledged as collateral. Is that correct? And can you work us through how that works? Sure. So the basic idea here
3: is exactly as you were saying, Bob, if we limited the proposal to just secured borrowing, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Ellison, people who are very wealthy a bank would feel pretty comfortable taking out lending on a recourse basis, knowing that they have billions and billions of dollars worth of net worth, that there'd have to be a totally radical shift in their economic circumstances and their borrowing behavior before they were really at risk of not being paid back. And so the easiest way to avoid this tax, if it was limited simply to security interests on recourse debt, is just not to use security interest or If you have to use security interest, precisely as you said, to order it in a way where you're going to borrow against your highest basis assets first. And one of the things we think of as artificial about looking only to a security interest, even in, in terms of debt that is secured, is that with recourse debt, the lender always has recourse to all of your assets. When you go into the bank, regardless of what security interest you pledge, you're always in some senses pledging that all of your assets will be available if you don't pay and if the security interest is not sufficient to satisfy the loan. So for that reason, suppose Allison goes in and borrows $10 billion, whether he uses a security interest or not, we propose that instead what will happen is that his gain, the the amount realized under uh, 1001A here is still going to be $10 billion no matter what, but that his basis will be calculated not based on the basis of whatever he either does or does not use as a security interest, but instead using what we call the just a, a sort of simplifying assumption, First in, first out, or FIFO, we're going to use his basis in his oldest assets. And we had considered other proposals for sort of dealing with how to think about what assets are implicitly realized by borrowing, but we think this has a nice combination of being relatively difficult to evade or avoid, and also being relatively straightforward in terms of the cost of administration. We don't want to require Allison to value all of his assets. He has hundreds of billions of dollars worth of assets. When he's borrowed only $10 billion, we don't want to require the administrative apparatus to value $100 billion worth of assets. We really only want him to have to value $10 billion worth.
1: Okay. So that's very clever. Uh, And if I understand it, you're saying the tax base isn't the collateral. The tax base is the borrowing. But the amount of the gain has to look to the collateral because you are looking at assets and taking them first in, first out, as you said.
3: Yes. Although, but it's still just, I would emphasize, it's not the collateral here. It is just that his pool of assets is, in some senses, is where where we're looking for his basis. And we're using this first in, first out assumption to decide, in essence, what assets should we assign? We're not going to say, Larry, you get to pick your own basis, in essence, by choosing your collateral, but instead to say, uh, we're going to take just arguably an arbitrary, but a relatively straightforward assumption of first in, first out.
1: Valuation issues. If we're talking about a publicly traded security, it's really easy to look up a price quote and figure out what these assets are worth. Maybe a little bit less easy if you're talking about a a privately held security. And if you get into works of art or or real estate, you know, then it gets really murky. Are there limitations on the types of assets that you'd look at? Major assets? I think you use the term major assets. Yeah,
2: we spend a a while thinking through how to make this thing as low compliance cost as possible, while still kind of being true to the the goals of the tax. So, you know, suppose we have Larry Ellison, you know, he has this $10 million loan. What we do is we look to first in, first out FIFO assets, but we focus on the major assets. And we define that as large holdings. Of easier to value things. So the art, so as you're kind of going through the assets, by the time that our billionaire, Ellison, purchased them, you skip over the art, you skip over the hard-to-value home. And, you know, it is the case that most wealthy, they didn't have publicly traded assets. Some of them, though, do not. Some of them are a little harder to value. Coke Enterprise, not publicly traded on stock markets but we think fairly easy to value, at least relative to your Picasso. So we think that if we we limit it to these types of, we're calling major assets, uh, the valuation issue will be relatively easy. And furthermore, it's, it's worth noting, when you're talking about the estate tax and you're a taxpayer, there are really big reasons to try to undervalue something because if you say, oh yeah, it's only worth half as much as it actually is, let's say, you pay half as much in tax. That is not what happens under our tax because if your asset is actually worth half as much, well, that just means you go on to the next asset. And you know, yes, uh, the basis will be higher as a share of, of the value of the asset, but in the end, you're, you're still gonna go on to the next asset and pay a decent amount of tax so that the, the, the games that taxpayers are going to play here are likely substantially lower. They have an incentive to play games much less than they want would under taxes that we're otherwise familiar with, like the estate tax.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. First of all, we're intimately familiar with both the difficulties and the feasibility of valuing things like private companies under the estate tax. But we do have some estimates in terms of the compliance costs, both on the side of the IRS, but also importantly on the side of taxpayers coming out of the estate tax. And there's a relatively widely cited article by Greg Leiserson on that question. And we estimate sort of extrapolating from that, that basically taxpayer compliance costs here would be less than half of 1% of the total revenue raised, which for tax that we think is relatively equitable is I think not a bad ratio in terms of compliance costs.
0: Support for this podcast is provided by University of California Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. This preeminent and innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level, in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student to faculty ratio, cutting edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's Graduate Tax Program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information and to apply to this highly selective program, visit law.uci.edu/gradtax. That's law.uci.edu/gradtax.
1: Now I have to ask about double taxation. I assume there's going to be a adjustment in basis once this tax applies, because if you didn't, then you would effectively be taxing the person twice. When it's eventually disposed of, if it's disposed of, if there, isn't, if there isn't a step up at death or something like that. Yeah,
3: exactly. So, in the same way that whenever else there is a constructive realization and you have to pay tax, even if you didn't get cash, your, your basis is adjusted upwards for the fact you pay tax on that gain. It's just the same as if you'd sold it to yourself in some senses. And if
1: you did that and you pay tax on the gain, your basis would adjust upwards. Excellent. Okay. Who is a covered taxpayer? What kind of households are we talking about here?
2: So we begin with households that have $100 million of wealth, and that, that household would actually pay a, a 0% tax. We phase it in up to from $100 million to $200 million. So $200 million households would pay the full tax rate, and $150 million would pay half the tax rate. We, we phase it in linearly like that. So you know, if you have that amount of wealth, then you're in. And if, if you borrow, you pay tax, uh, subject to some thresholds. A million dollars of borrowing at the outset are exempt. Two hundred thousand dollars annually uh, are exempt. Again, we're just we're trying to reduce the compliance costs while still having a, an equitable distribution of the tax and still maintaining the, the revenue raising aspect of it. So uh, above one hundred million pays into to two hundred million, uh, subject
1: to these thresholds. Well, that still leaves a lot of borrowing out there. I mean, the, the loophole's not going away, right? If you can go up to $100 million in debt and not pay the tax, and even between $100 200000000 million, you're just phasing it in. And then you've got an annual allowance and you have a lifetime allowance. It seems very balanced. Yeah, I do want to just
3: correct one thing there, which is it's for $100 million worth of wealth, but that does leave, obviously, people who are tremendously wealthy. If you have $99 million of wealth, you're tremendously wealthy, but you are not covered by our tax. We're trying to you know, trade off, in essence, making sure that we are hitting the area where the problem is, we think, most severe and reducing compliance costs by virtue of reducing the covered portion of taxpayers to this relatively small segment of the population. We're dealing with only around 40,000 households, which we think is going to help also lower compliance costs and, and, in our view, make it more equitable. In some senses, you just got to draw the line somewhere. There's no particular reason to think that the arguments that make us think that somebody who has 101 million should ha- be at least partially taxed under this doesn't apply to somebody with 99.
2: And the one thing I would add is, you know, look, you know, 100 million is, is a nice round number. It's also the number that was used in the you know, minimum income tax and in, in the president's budget. Like, look, you, you could you could start higher, you could start lower. We think that 100 million. I don't. We would not start any higher than 100 million, but you know, 50 million could be possibly reasonable. We were kind of keying off of the the political choice that the White House made on this. Congress were to take it up, they could choose a different number and lower it. It'll uh, raise more revenue but also to tax more taxpayers and vice versa.
1: Now, one thing that's interesting is you are not creating a whole new tax regime, right? I mean, there are some proposals out there for a federal wealth tax, and they envision basically a whole new framework, a whole new structure, something based on a a mark-to-market mechanism, which raises all sorts of legal issues and constitutional issues, and there's a liquidity concern. You don't have any of that, right? You don't have the liquidity concern. Constitutional, there's this case out there before the Supreme Court, Moore versus United States, about the realization requirement and all of the background with, you know, Eisner versus McComber and so forth. You don't get into any of that, right? We think the answer is no. We think that our proposal
3: is constitutional. We think that for a couple of reasons. Actually, I think the most Obvious reason is actually that it is an excise tax on borrowing. The Supreme Court during the era of Pollock before the 16th Amendment, when the Supreme Court had previously held that income taxes were unconstitutional as direct taxes that were not apportioned, nevertheless upheld both the estate tax and the corporate income tax as excises, respectively, on the privilege of passing wealth at the time of death and of doing business uh, as a corporation. Again, The idea here is this is an excise on borrowing, whereas with, say, the corporate income tax, the court said, is an excise on the privilege of doing business as a corporation. The measure of the tax, though, is income. Similarly here, the excise is on the privilege of borrowing with the measure being unrealized income at the time. In addition, I think Zach and I both think that the correct outcome in Moore is that realization is not constitutionally required. The court has said, both in Halvering v. Brun, and in cottage savings, that the realization requirement is simply a matter of administrative convenience. But even if the court were to hold in more that realization is constitutionally required, we think that this tax should meet is, in essence, a constitutional realization. Now, it's not a realization under the current code, but that doesn't mean that Congress has exerted its full taxing power in terms of realization. What's going on here in Eisner, Reed, McComber, the case you just mentioned, the Supreme Court held that a stock dividend was not constitutionally income. And one of the things that it emphasized was that there had been no severing of the gain. And in particular that Miss McComber got no cash out of this stock dividend, got nothing separate for her own personal use. And that is obviously contrasted with a situation in which you borrow against gains implicitly or explicitly and you get cash. That is exactly the situation in some senses that the McComber court was concerned about. And what they found, I think incorrectly in my view, but that's what they found, was constitutionally required in some form or fashion, but we have it here.
2: And just to add on, in terms of the the policy arguments as well, apart from the the constitutional bits, compared to a a wealth tax or a a mark-to-market tax, there are upsides and downsides as a policy matter. One downside of ours is that the scope for revenue raising is much, much lower than with a mark-to-market tax or a wealth tax for the simple reason that people just don't borrow all that much. You know, th- these folks borrow one to two percent of their wealth, which just you know is a much, much smaller base th- than wealth. It is ninety nine to 98 percent less than the wealth tax. So it- it's a smaller base and then mark to market, but it, d- it does have these upsides that you you point to, you know, liquidity is less of an issue, like you have borrowed money, so you should be able to, to pay it. You may have to borrow a little more to pay the tax, but uh, you, you're engaging in borrowing. And based on a, a survey that Ed and I did a couple of years ago of a representative sample of Americans, we think that this is likely to be more viewed more favorably versus a pure mark-to-market tax. As, as you alluded to at the very beginning, there's actually surprising opposition to even taxing quite rich people mark-to-market because of the intuition that it's not real. But if you borrow against it, kind of turn it into real cash, we find that there's 90 percentage points greater support for taxing it versus you know, taxing it if it's borrowed versus taxing it to just, just all mark to market. So we think that this is might fit with public's intuitions uh, more in terms of what, what should be taxed.
1: Yeah. And that complies with my own thinking about your proposal. When I read it, I thought this is a better federal wealth tax, maybe not as robust for the reasons you mentioned but it just seems cleaner and and more precise, and it doesn't have all these mark-to-market problems or constitutional issues. You mentioned as an uh, excise tax, I suppose, under the Article I excise tax power, it would only be subject to the uniformity requirement, and that's a very low low hurdle. But even then, I mean, you have a realization of that, the idea that The borrowing is a constructive disposition of the asset. just seems very, very clear to me. So I don't think you'd have any of those uh, headaches. Hopefully, if it ever comes to pass, I don't know. I don't think it would be that litigious. Although in this day and age, everything is litigious. But let me ask you this final question. We live in an era of global mobility where people pick up and leave. Let's say we've been talking about Larry Ellison. Let's say he really didn't like this tax. He really hated it. And he said, I'm going to move to Singapore it applies what on the basis of residence and citizenship because it's part of the income tax right it's the same rules as you'd have for um the regular income tax your th- your thoughts on that expatriation how does that affect this
2: yeah i mean so this is a you know a slightly higher tax rate on capital for us citizens and residents it's worth noting a lot of the revenue that you know, like i said over half of the revenue is Borrowing in the past, rather than forward-looking. So, one people are not borrowing all that much, one or two percent of wealth. So it's it's just not all that much more money. And of what's raised, a lot of it's in the past, not even is not even forward-looking. So, good reason to think that this would not do much to deter people from being U.S. citizens. It's worth emphasizing, like that, is what it would take to 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 avoid paying this tax. You'd have to say you are no longer a U.S. citizen and do all that's involved. And that's good reason to think that Larry Ellison's not going to leave over a tax of, of this of this size.
3: Yeah, I think that's that's right. And I think expatriation is highly salient but relatively rare. And there also is, and obviously, as you probably know, an exit tax that would require Ellison to end up paying quite a lot of tax if he wanted to expatriate to Singapore. And I think this is unlikely to be the straw that breaks the camel's back on that. Is, as Zach said, it's, a, you know, on the one hand, obviously, we, there's some tension in our argument. We want to say there's real revenue potential here, but it's not so much that Larry Ellison and, and other Calvary taxpayers would not wake up in a radically different tax system. They wake up in pretty much the same tax system with what we view as one loophole that's been closed.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. I I think the exit tax under uh, 877 cap A with the deemed sale when you expatriate, I think he'd actually pay more tax if he left than if he stayed and remained subject. To this, okay, and just one final thing I wanted to review is your revenue estimate. You said it comes in around what, 102 billion? That's over ten years, and that's making what kind of an assumption about tax rates? You're following the Biden administration's proposal, so that revenue estimate, just to be clear, it would be a little bit less if tax rates remain the way they are today. Correct?
2: Yes. So we're assuming a tax rate of 44.6%, which is what when you, when you add up all the Biden proposals. Add up to. So the revenue would be about half of what it's of $100 billion at existing current actions.
1: Yeah. And to review that, the 44.6% effective tax rate, that's top marginal rate of 39.6 plus the net investment income tax that would increase from 3% to 5%. There you have it. The authors of the piece are Professor Ed Fox and Zach Lisko. The name of the piece again is no more tax-free lunch for billionaires closing the borrowing loophole. Professors, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Senior Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us?
4: Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Tom Greenaway explains self-help options for handling tax mistakes in different contexts. Ruva Naviona considers which provisions of the TCJA should be retained and which should be allowed to expire. In Tax Note State, David Uri Ben Carmel considers non-litigated resolutions to tax disputes. Ronald Fisher analyzes low-tax states and their status in the economy. In Tax Notes International, Three King and Spalding practitioners explain how investment treaties may help companies preserve tax incentives designed to encourage foreign direct investment. Matthias Malay breaks down Husky Energy versus The King, explaining the potential effect on Canadian tax treaties and cross-border securities lending transactions. And finally, in featured analysis, Marie Sapiri discusses lawmakers' frustrations with the proposed regulations implementing the Inflation Reduction Act's electric vehicle credits.
0: That's it for this week. You can follow me online at tax Stew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at taxnotes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk.